Please be seated. <clears throat> Could I say thank you to those who helped make this happen? Thank you to those behind the scenes. So thank you to Naomi who played the piano. Thank you to those who served the coffee and brought those amazing biscuits. Um, th thank you to Graham who came here and made sure that the heat... I don't anyway, Somebody made sure the heating was on. It was. I. So it's a team effort. So great stuff. I think preaching, actually, is a, and teaching is a community affair. So whoever offers, prays and offers, and whoever receives, prays and receives. So you have to work at it. So if you're on your phone through tonight and you don't quite get the message, think about it. <laughs> so uh, uh, some people have said that because they, for various reasons, they weren't able to be with us last time, um, I think the snow is the principal reason. What we've done, uh, we've put down here, there's a handout from each of the talks. So every week there are handouts. And if you missed them or you, you haven't got a printer that prints them nicely or something, please help yourself tonight. They're here on the front row and they'll be on here on the front row for the, the next two sessions as well. So just to, re to, uh, to review, really, we're now looking at Jesus, the new Moses, uh, the way Matthew's gospel paints a portrait for us of Jesus. And we were thinking about how portraits are the way we remember people. And we, we have the artist, we have the subject, and together they create a portrait. And today, I'd like you to look at this portrait and see what it says to you about what is the artist contributing to what it is that you can see there. You'll recognize it instantly. Not far from here. Coventry. Coventry Cathedral, yes. That's it. And if you look a bit more closely, so Graham Sutherland, it's a tapestry hung uh, in Coventry Cathedral. Um, what, what does it suggest? Yes. Do you see between the feet of Christ as a person? Do you see the scale, the comparison? Christ in glory. He was trying to suggest, I think, something about how when Jesus rose ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, he became who he fully is. And it may be something as awe-inspiring as that. Well, we're looking at literary portraits. And so I've suggested there are a number of tools we can use. Uh, the literary portrait, the shape of the text is one. The shape of the text is always helpful. And I think one of the, the, the dangers, really, of only reading a little bit every day in your Bible reading, or perhaps in church, is that we sometimes don't see that bigger shape. And I think it's really great if you can find time and read through a book. Maybe Mark, who always do in one sitting. You could probably do them all in one sitting. Um, people have told me that when a book has really caught their imagination, um, they can read it till four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, there you are then. Well, now, I'd like to suggest we look at the, the shape of the text always, but we're going to look today how the interaction between the different characters. Because I think what I'd like you to imagine is the editor of, of who puts together this literature is a bit like a film director, and he can move the characters around. So he said, I'd like you to come to the fore, I'd like you to say a bit less, and I'd like you to say a bit more. And so the way these characters are interacting, they're, they're actually being choreographed by the director. So um, together, a picture builds. Well, let's, let's begin with the shape and then let's look at some of the interaction between the characters as a way in. The shape of the Gospel of Matthew. Five discernible blocks. The birth narrative, the narratives, the infancy narratives, the public ministry of Jesus, Jesus and the disciples, teaching Jerusalem, the trials, cross, and resurrection. A bit like Mark, which we did last time. Oh, 
only not quite. Do you see? Mark had nothing here. There was no... There's no birth now. In Mark, went straight into the story. And similarly, because we've lost the original ending of the Gospel of Mark, there was no sort of appearance of Jesus, just the angel talking to the women. But in every other respect, broadly speaking, it's the same development of thought. And you can see that in, certainly in Mark last time, in Matthew now, that the public ministry, Jesus is actually spending time with people. And he only majors on his disciples later on, something like halfway through the ministry, a bit more, when they've got enough understanding to be able to make sense of what he's doing. And remember in Mark, in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, you're the Messiah. And then the the, the more uh, teaching for the disciples follows on. And it's just the same in Matthew 2. Well, let's look a little more closely then. So there's Matthew. There's the five blocks. Now, if you just take your Bible and look at chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 5. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. How long did this open-air seminar continue. I don't mean how many hours. I mean, with <laughs> where does Jesus finish this? End of chapter 7, that's right, 7.28. So do you see, that, see, there's a whole lot of teaching all there in one place. Now, it wasn't like that in Mark. In Mark, there was, a, there was an interweaving of uh, healing, teaching, uh, exorcism, teaching, uh, uh, crossing the lake, or whatever it is. But here, we've got a whole lot of saying, so much so that this Matthew 5 to 7 is known as the Sermon on the Mount, for that very reason. It's a collection of sayings. Well, if you look at Matthew's Gospel, if you had the chance to read it through, this is what you'd notice. Five times in the Gospel of Matthew, there are collections of sayings. Sayings which, as it were, would have been dotted through the ministry of Jesus, seem to have been collected together because Matthew wanted to make some sort of point. So there there are the five blocks of teaching. The first one we've just looked at, the Sermon on the Mount. Then you've got the the, the explanation of the mission to the the twelve that they sent out the disciples are sent out two by two. Then in, Mark, in Matthew 13, you've got a collection of parables, one after another, after another, after another. Then discussions of life in the kingdom. And finally, in that period when he's in Jerusalem, going to the temple courts and teaching, a lot of teaching. So Matthew has arranged the material differently. He feels that this way he wants to, as it were, say something. And by the end of this evening, I'm going to offer you a a thought as to why he might have done that. But it is quite striking. I mean, I think, although you can read it through, and that Sermon on the Mount would probably only take you about 15 minutes or so, um, so you could say, it's still a short sermon as sermons go. (laughs) Um, Within the narrative, it actually is quite substantial, just as a proportion of the text. Well, that's the shape of Matthew's gospel. What more can we say? Well, let's then now look, to, let's just turn now to the interaction between different characters. And, and I'd like to ask the question, how do different people inside the, the gospel narrative describe Jesus? Here's an example, just to sort of whet the appetite. The interaction between the characters is used in the way that the, the gospels are written to help us as readers. So when Jesus has the first hearing, that's before Caiaphas, the high priest, Caiaphas says to him, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so. Then he's taken to Pilate, the Roman uh, governor. Pilate says, well, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. 
for Pilate, Messiah and Son of God would have been fairly meaningless. He, in fact, he does mention them, but he, it's when he's quoting the Jewish leaders. So Pilate, a Gentile, sees Jesus as a king, the king of the Jews. A Jew, a prayerful, faithful Jew, sees him as Messiah and Son of God. At least sees him as potentially presenting himself as that. So do you see that different people from different perspectives are describing Jesus, but they're using a language which fits them, which fits their own perspective? This is what I suggest we would do. You ask, what has somebody just said? Who is it that's making that statement? What's their background? And then how, how likely are they to be a reliable guide for we who read the text? Does that make sense? It's almost as if we can interview each of the voices, the people who speak in the narrative, and say, Where, why did you say that? Where are you coming from with that? What made you think that? What do you mean by that? And together, they build up this kind of intersecting search-like uh, picture of Jesus. So, well, here's a little... I hope you can see this. Now, can you just about read that? Could I ask if there's the back? Is that all right? Okay. Well, here we've got about, I think, just over a dozen statements about Jesus from people in Matthew's Gospel. And you'll see they have all different kinds of ways of describing Jesus. The first one, we won't look through them in detail because uh, that might take a bit long. But if you, the first one is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, who is that? Now, if you're looking at the, the screen, you will answer it before. I should have. It's a mistake you make, isn't it? In fact, I did it just on Sunday when Peter was preaching. He was saying, and what did he say? Oh, right. <laughs> so, um, well, it's the editor who's put together. Or sometimes they, call, they would say the function, as far as the text is concerned, the narrator, the person who's telling the story, who's woven the tapestry into the story of God. And then you've got um, an angel speaking. You've got the magi who come following the star. The editor pops in again. Then you've got the voice from heaven at the baptism. Uh, then you've got the tempter, Satan, and you've got demons. Then you've got a man with leprosy, a teacher of the law, the blind man. Peter, Matthew 16. Jesus says, who do you say are? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The crowds. Jesus once refers to himself as the Son of Man. And those two questions we've just looked at. So what we've got are lots of different opinions about who Jesus is. So which of those would you say are, in inverted commas, reliable? Which do you think, yes, they've seen something? And which do you think, well, not sure? I guess you'd trust Matthew, would you? You don't have to. Oh, no, no. What I mean is, do think about it. <laughs> would you? Okay, well, you're generous. And I've, I've, I've always thought you're a generous man, so... <laughs> I think some, okay, I, anybody, anybody else, is there anybody here who looks at one of those descriptions and says, I don't think that person's really understood who Jesus is? Which would that be? I think Pilate is asking it because he's been told it. Yeah. And, and Pilate is probably asking it with his political hat on. Do we really want an insurrection in, in an area which um, I'm responsible for? So that's not so. That's more to do with his dilemma. Other suggestions? Teacher, teacher of the law. Yes. I think hmm, a teacher of the law may recognise another teacher, but is Jesus? Is is that sufficient? Is it enough? No. The uh, who did? Sorry, which one was that? Yeah. So I, I think the crowds, it's very interesting, they're quite fickle, really. They're, they're interested, and then the wind changes, really. And so I think it's, it's, a, quite, it's, a, it's a preliminary uh, engagement. I remember, I think I may have mentioned this before, when I was a vicar uh, just around the corner here in Middleton, um, 
I, I think it would. You would spend time with people who've uh, lost a relative and you take the service and you pray that the Lord would help them through it. And, and it, was, it was wonderful to have people say, you know, God really helped. And then two years later, you see them and I say, well, how's it going? And they say, oh, I'm all right now. I don't need that anymore. So when I needed help, so God had been slightly reduced to an ambulance, really, for them to get them through. Whereas actually his love is in order to open things up, not to just pass on. So I would say the crowds don't really know what they mean. So I don't... Um, the, the, for me, these are the ones I thought were reliable and worth looking at. So the editor, clearly... That's that's why he's in the scripture in the canon. The angels, yes. The voice from heaven, the tempter. If you look, look at the temptations. Chapter four. Verse five. The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the highest point of the temple, and said, "If you are the son of God." Throw yourself down, and so on. He was saying, if you really are who it seems you are. And it is interesting that in the, the New Testament narratives, Satan and the demons actually know who Jesus is. And every now and again, they let it out. And I think I've said before, occasionally, uh, and Jesus tells them to be quiet. But every now and again, Jesus always says, be quiet after they've spoken. Sometimes he says, be quiet, and they never speak. But other times he says, well, and then say what you want, right, that's it. And they are unwitting witnesses to who Jesus is. The, the people who, who inhabit the more spiritual realm, that's Satan, angels, the voice of heaven, and the demons, are quite clear who Jesus is. It, it is we who are muddled, we who are just full of living in this world, and we imagine... Um, we're just sort of, I suppose, busy with life and things. So what do we have? If we draw all this together, in Matthew, the two titles of Jesus, which are given to us by, through the gospel reliably, are Jesus is Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God. <clears throat> now, Jesus Messiah fits the messianic term expectations of the days. They were waiting for a Messiah, an anointed person, who was going to come and, as it were, restore Jerusalem, restore Israel, call back the Jews who had been dispersed, uh, and set up a new kingdom. And that's what they were hoping for. And actually, Orthodox Jews still hope for it today. And they pray uh, as we wait for the Messiah, Lord, still to this day. And that was popularly, so Davidic king, all of that, son of David, all of that is, fits. Jesus came from that heritage, and he is the Messiah, he's the anointed one. But the anointed one wasn't divine. He was just the next prophet, the next king. And there was another stream of Messianic thought, which actually re thought that the way, it, certainly in some of the, the pictures you get in Daniel, the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, that actually... There is more to this. The Messiah is not just another king. He is, in some way or other, the Son of God. And so although that was a, a minority view in, that, in those days, in the Jewish community, it was certainly there. And you may have heard of Qumran, a, a place where they found some caves. And inside these caves, there were lots of pots. And inside these pots were lots of fragments of scriptures uh, from about 100 B.C., and they've got these fragments out and they've uh, put them together and translated and stuff. And there's, some, there's quite a lot of the Old Testament there. It was a group of Jews who'd gone off to, to they formed themselves into a little community and they went off to pray and wait on God and, and live a, an ascetic life. And there, uh, some of the, um, the fragments they got from those caves talk about how they were looking for the Messiah, the son of the living God. So those two things are there and we saw that those are two those are also true we find those in mark as well so what does matthew offer which is particular to matthew peculiar to matthew and i'd like to suggest one of the things he offers one is that jesus can be seen as the new moses 
Well, how does he do that? Because Jesus, there's never, Matthew never says Jesus is like Moses. It's more subtle than that. Um, do you enjoy those sort of books where you, detective stories or thrillers where you've got to work out what's going on? I think reading the, the New Testament is a bit like that. You're given lots and there's more still if you care to look more closely. And so I suggest here's a bit of the more still. The, the value added, they call it in Ofsted terms. So uh, here it is. Jesus, the new Moses. How does it happen? Well, let's look at the way Moses was understood in those days. What do we know about Moses? Sorry, I'm what do we know about Moses in the Jewish religion of the first century? What did they think about him, the Jews of Jesus' time? Yep. He was associated with the law. Remember the transfiguration? Who was there with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. And why those two? Because they were representative. Representative what? Moses represented and Elijah, the prophets, yeah. And the law is the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Penta for five. So Moses was associated as the one who gave the law to the children of Israel, and those first five books capture it. So it's, it's the Torah that Moses gave them that. And so for a Jew, Moses is really important. I mean, this is their foundation document. It's a bit like having, if we knew Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, we'd say that this is a foundational um, part of our tradition. What else would Moses have evoked, do you think? Leadership, yeah. Yes, to the promised land. Yes, Ten Commandments. Let, let's stick with the, the leadership of the promised land for a moment. So again, release from slavery, the Exodus. If you were to look at the Old Testament, the key image of salvation is the Exodus. If you look in the New Testament, the key image is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So the whole of old uh, Jewish thinking in the times of Jesus, when they thought about how God would save, is all shaped by and coloured by the Exodus. And Moses was the one who led them out up to the Red Sea, or the Reed Sea as it really is, then crossed and on through the desert, just as we were singing. Uh, do you remember that when they wanted a drink, Moses hit the rock? And the Lord told him off, because he said, I didn't tell you hit it, I just said, so say to it. Um, and Moses, and, and they were led by the pillar of fire, and so on. Moses set the children of Israel free. He was the one who went. He was, he was a, um, a saviour. Moses was just huge. Yep. And he gave the Ten Commandments. That's right. So here we've got three things I would suggest that Moses contributes to the Jews of that day. First, he led the people out in the Exodus. Second, he gave uh, the commandments on Mount Sinai. And thirdly, eventually when the, the book, the Old Testament was pulled together, he was a, the whole of the first five books were attributed to him. They were the law. Well now, this, if you'd like to take your Bible, let's look at that Exodus event. It's in the book of Exodus, naturally. And it starts in chapter 12, doesn't it? The end of the plagues and the freedom. So you've got the Passover, during the night, verse 1231, Exodus 1231, uh, Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Leave my people, go. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave. Not only were they set free, they were urged on their way. And so they came in 1317 to the crossing of the Reed Sea and then on into the desert. That's the Exodus, the seminal event in the Old Testament. So what happens? They cross, they go a bit further, and then we have this lovely song of, of Miriam in, in chapter 15. Um, water from the rock, as we just mentioned a moment ago. Jethro, 
and then they reach Mount Sinai. And then on Mount Sinai, God meets with them. And on Exodus 20, God spake these words to Moses. And here is the gift of the Ten Commandments. And actually more, but, the, but those ten uh, sum it up. Now, I want you to see, because this is something that is really, really radical. And it is not spotted by many. Look at the order. What comes first? Not in, sorry, not in the, oh, I beg your pardon, in the order in, in the narrative, not in the Ten Commandments. No, it's a fair question. I reply that. <laughs> sorry? He, yes, that's right. Thank you. We'll come to that in a moment. Well spotted. Exodus happens in which chapter? 12. The commandments are given in which chapter? 20. So Exodus precedes the commandments. Yes? So God saves his people without saying anything about you've got to be good. Doesn't he? Salvation is not about being good. It really isn't. And people say, oh, in the Old Testament, it says. It does say. What God did in Exodus 12, he said, I'm, I'm living out my covenant, my promise, my marriage to my people. We together are going through this. And out he led them using Moses as his agent. And then he gave them the Ten Commandments. So what is the function then of the Ten Commandments? All these thou shalt and shalt nots and whatnot. What's the function of them? They've been saved, so what do they do? What do the Ten Commandments do? They do that. Aha, yet we're getting warm. I think, yes, that, that would, that's a, a consequence. I would suggest the Ten Commandments are like a marriage enrichment course. They are a gift from God so that you don't lose what he's already given you, given us. These are given so that we may continue in that covenant relationship, that close relationship with God. And that's what Moses knew and saw. But over the time, I don't know if it's something to do with our human condition, we have reversed it. And so now we think we've got to be good in order to be saved. Now, I know we don't mean our salvation depends on being good, but the number of people who say I'm not good enough would you like to? I'm not good enough. No. It is a nonsense, this idea that the commandments are there for to get us saved. The children of Israel were already saved. Egypt was behind them. They were actually on the way to the promised land. Isn't that great? So, the, 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 so what Moses is doing, yeah, I'll put it there. He's showing us what grace is like. And so when Jesus looks at Moses and, and, and Matthew says, I think Jesus is a bit like Moses, he's saying Jesus does the same. He goes to people and he invites them to follow him. He never ever says, be good, then you can come. He says, come, and then if you want to keep your relationship going with me, be good. And it's a completely different world. The first bit, the come with me, I'll heal you, come with me. The, the, you know, the, we, we spoke last time about the, the, you know, the people who were told to be quiet. and They didn't. They attached themselves to Jesus and made a lot of noise. They were just in celebratory mood. It was wonderful to be saved. It was just brilliant. And then, the, and then Jesus says, now, if you want to keep going, if Moses said, if you want to keep going, keep this alive, this relationship with God, keep it fresh. These are the things to avoid. This is the point of the Ten Commandments. They're a gift, a love gift, to help us continue in what God has really given. Now, I, th I find that um, both a, a lovely gift uh, and also a load off my shoulders, really. Because I don't know anybody who's good enough to be saved or even get close to it. John Wesley was asked the question, are you perfect? He says, no, he says, I do know somebody, but he's a Church of England clergyman in the next parish. So I don't think he knew him very well. Jesus, sorry, Moses started where the people were, trapped, helpless, impotent, and led them out. And isn't that just what Jesus does? He meets us where we are, and he leads us out. And the first thing we know about Jesus is that his love for us. He said he, free for, he forgives what we, we, we judge ourselves by. 
he gives us power through the Spirit for areas where we just we're, we can't get over it. We're just habitually prone to repeat this same mistake again and again. He gives us guidance when we're confused. Now, I don't think... Um, sometimes people infinite, infantilize that. Um, I think the Lord te- treats us as adults. You know the, the poem about um, the footprints? There were four footprints going, then there were two, and then... The, and uh, people say, uh, or the, the, the person said, well, where were you when there were just the two footprints walking across the desert? And you know, in the poem it says, and the Lord said, I was carrying you. Isn't that lovely? That's a great picture. But I think you can equally say, because I think the Lord has a sense of humor. I hope so. Um, that was when we both hopped. There's joy in this salvation, you know. It's not serious business. It's, it's, it's lovely business. So that's the first thing that uh, Matthew says. I see in Jesus what Moses showed there. And then, let's see how Jesus compares alongside that. So Jesus, first of all, we do get that thing, thank you, that was spotted. Moses and Jesus, they both had the same thing. When they were babies, their life was at risk. There was the bulrushes and then they had to take Jesus, the baby, away. Jesus opened the way to God, died and rose again. Uh, he's the saviour. He, the one who gave the words of life. On, Mount, uh, on Matthew, Matthew then portrayed it. The Sermon on the Mount is very much like Mount Sinai. It's like Moses, Mount Sinai. Jesus went up a mountain and taught them the word of God. Moses went up the mountain and received the word of God for the people. Jesus received the word of God for the people. And I suggest that that actually is one of those little subtle things. That's why there are five blocks. That's why the teachings bring grouped together. And why the first one starts with, and Jesus went up to a mountain and started to teach. That Matthew is saying, if you have ears to hear, I think you'd find that quite helpful to think of Jesus as the new Moses. It'll add to what you already know. And here's the second thing. Now this, I think, Again, I think it blows my mind. I hope it'll blow yours by tonight, end of time. If you read through Matthew's Gospel, you will notice how centred it is on Jesus, the disciples, and the Jews. And you remember when there was a woman who was not a Jew, went and asked for help. And Jesus says, no, this is not the time. Why should I throw good bread to the dogs? Do you remember that? It seems all very harsh. And she argues, and he says, all right, because you've argued, all right. There is a, there is a, a really... Jewish focus to the narrative all the way through. You'll notice that there's many more prophecies from the Old Testament quoted and demonstrated as being fulfilled in Jesus. You'll notice that um, the the phrase kingdom of God is represented as kingdom of heaven because that was a way of respecting God. You didn't say God, you said heaven. It was just a little Jewish convention, really. This is a a gospel written for those who are um, embedded in the sort of Jewish heritage. And then, right at the end, if you turn to Matthew 28, what comes along? Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Yep. The Great Commission. Go, verse 19. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The Great Commission. Now, where did that come from? Jesus, up to this point, has had no time for anybody outside the Jewish community. And suddenly, we've got this commission to not just, as it were, share it with your neighbor, but to take this good news to the whole world. Where? did that come from? Now you can say, okay, the Lord, uh, you know, Jesus was praying and his father said, right, lad, time to go. And he might have been that too. I suggest that Jesus looked to the Old Testament, the law, the books of the law, and what he did, he looked to where the, the books attributed to Moses and he looked at Genesis 12 because this is where the story really begins. So if you go back to Genesis 12, Genesis 12, verses 1 to, to 3, this is the God speaking to Abraham at the very beginning. 
I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. The Jews were meant to be the people of blessing to everybody. And it didn't work out like that. They became too self-referring. They were meant to be going around bringing the aroma of grace and hope to the peoples of their day. And instead they became a particular people, withdrawn, separate, trying to keep at arm's length from other people in case they were contaminated by them. They reversed their calling. And Jesus, going back to the, to the, the books of Moses, says the real point of you, my people, is that you are here to be a blessing for everybody. And I think Matthew 28 is Jesus saying, now, let's start again. What is that you're calling you, the new people of God? It is this. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Go and make disciples of all peoples on the earth, all the nations. So this surprise, which a Jew would have been really so flabbergasted by it. Up to that point, they'd have been quite happy-ish. But now suddenly, what they thought was specially theirs is, is for everybody. Um, Jesus says that's true for the church as well. So two things flow from that for me. First, Moses modeled grace and Jesus picks that up and does the same. And second, Moses takes us back to the beginning when the Lord spoke and Jesus says the same. So when we look at ourselves as a church, the first thing I would ask is, have we really, really understood the freedom of grace? Do you know what Augustine said? He said, love God and do what you like. Do you know what Luther said? Do you know, I'm fed up of people. If you're going to sin, sin boldly. He was tired of, you know, I've got to say drip. We, the, t the music teacher at my school called them uh, drinks, of, uh, drinks of water dressed up. Um, he meant people who are just not a bit of this and a bit of that. Those in, who in, 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 the, in Revelation, the, the letters, the, the churches who've lost their first love. We are called to enter into the freedom of grace and to enjoy it. And for people to look and say, grief, what have they got? You remember at Pentecost, they said, are oh, they been drinking? There's something about these people that's different and new and they're clearly enjoying it. Now, I don't know how much you enjoy coming to APC and I don't know how much you uh, share that. I mean, I, I ask this tongue-in-cheek, not because of the detail what we do here, but because so much of the church's life is about running the church. We are supposed to be entering into the new life of the kingdom and living it out so everybody can see it. When I go to visit churches, um, I sometimes say if the weather's nice, Right, let's all decamp. Let's go and have our service outside. If we're here and we've got something to share, let's share it. Why are we huddled away, especially with two doors to keep the heat in, um, so uh, across another side of the green, and most people are in Costa, well, you know what I mean. So the freedom and of the grace gift life with Christ is just super. And I think sometimes we need to just say, yeah, that's our bedrock, that's really where it is. And second, this idea of being the people who are here for everybody. And I, I'm struck again and again how Jesus went around. He, he healed people. He didn't always say to them, come and follow me. He just said, listen, God loves you. Heal, get well. Shouldn't that be our calling too? Isn't that our calling too? So to live the life of grace and to be a blessing. There's a, uh, Paul says, wherever we go, there should be the sweet aroma of Jesus. Wouldn't that be lovely? People said, you know, when this person comes around the corner, they just bring something to us. I remember I was in a school and I had a, this, I'll stop because you want to, oh no, sorry, I've got two minutes. Um, in, in the school and the, um, there was a teacher there who was a Marxist and she taught history in secondary school and she said, and I, and I wheedle a little bit of Marxism every history lesson. They don't know, but I do it. And so the conversation went on. This was kind of relaxing the staff room with nobody listening, you know, kind of routine. Um, and then she said, and there's this person who's, who, he's a Christian, this person. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about him because he walks around and the way she put it was, everybody else is trudging around to the next lesson and he's looking out as if he's enjoying life. 
And I thought, she spotted the kind of thing that we, we covered, don't we? That we would be different in an attractive way. Not in a sort of measly, you know, sort of hair shirt way. But in a, in a joyful, spirit-filled, led freedom. Um, I, I think that, that Augustine, love God and do what you like. It, it, it's, a, it's not, well, it is, it's clever, but it's true. If you're in love with God, what you do, what you like, will be to please him. And together, you'll do all kinds of interesting things. Um, and so I, I'd like to say, as a, as a minister of the church for some 30 years, I'm very sorry that a lot of church life has been reduced to routine and has been filled with busyness. Because actually, we're meant to encourage one another to go and enter into the Holy Spirit's gift and free gift. And that's really what Moses were wanting, and that's what Jesus wants. So there you are then. Right. I've finished for a bit. <laughs> now, in the um, handout, there are four questions. Would you like to split into groups? And, and then we'll have sort of 25 minutes looking at those and then about to 20 minutes of feedback and comment. So thank you very much for chipping in. And now it's your turn to crack on. All right, thank you. Would you like to make your way back to the center. Right. Well, now, is there anybody who uh, would like to just uh, open the conversation, really? Something that's either struck them in their discussion or as the evening uh, unfolded. And the microphone's here. Uh, the, the Genesis 12 scripture is a, an epiphany for me, really. It's a really good link between the Old and the New Testament. Love that. Within our group, we were looking at the first question, and we found it a real challenge. Um, we mentioned that um, for some um, non-churchgoers, the idea that Jesus is the Son of God is sometimes the most challenging idea, and they much prefer to see him as a, a prophet, um, a good man, uh, a good teacher, um, but the idea that he is son of God and Messiah um, is a real challenge. And then we talked about um, how we would talk about him, and, and actually we focus more on the fact that Jesus is our friend, he's um, our saviour and how we would relate to what Jesus has done in our lives and the real concrete things mm. and um, going back to what you said about um, almost at the beginning about the interactions between the people and Jesus and if we have really good relationships with people who are non-churchgoers then they will see us as reliable witnesses because they will see over a period of time, what God has actually done in our lives. Mm. And that, in many ways, speaks louder than the words that we can actually say. Mm, thank you. Okay. Uh, well, while you're thinking, um, what, what came to me as I was um, reflecting on this was, a bit, it, built, it builds a bit on, Naomi, what you're saying about... Uh, People will look at us and they will see, and that's a tangible way in to sort of talk about faith. Um, and I just wonder whether we um, uh, encourage each other or emphasize enough that the fact that we need to be renewed on a daily basis to be different. Because the whole of our culture is pressing us to conform. It persuades us, it, 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 it sets up values in our minds without our permission. Um, we need to, as Paul says, be, have the, our understanding transformed, renewed. And so it may be that one of the ways that this aroma of Jesus, which is, I think, Paul's phrase, uh, we need to perhaps spend more time with the Lord, really. It's not just about being happy. It's actually about being, uh, having that deep joy which flows over in all kinds of ways. 
And I look at the business of my life and I think, you know, there's so much more here. This is like paddling on the edge and then you're on to the next thing. Um, so maybe there's something there. For me, that's what I came with. I, I think the theory is brilliant. But actually making it work, I think I need to invest a bit more. Thank you. Okay, any other thoughts? Mike. Oh, sorry. Can we, can we have the microphone? Just pass it forward. Thanks. Uh, what question four, where it says, how central is it in your life and what has it led you to try out? I was saying in our little discussion group that I've been trying out in order to if you like, sow the seed of making disciples. I tried to be, and training myself to be, an opportunist by observation when I go about in my life. And it's amazing when you actually concentrate on that. It's amazing how by just uh, a short connection with somebody, a complete stranger, or just, just saying good morning, or sensing you start to sense people's mood and things like that and it gives you an opportunity or at least god gives you an opportunity mm. to um, sow a seed and you don't know when you leave them whether it's had any effect or not but i found a benefit from doing it even if i don't know what's happened to it <laughs> oh that's lovely thank you yeah great in our group, we were um, one of the things that we th thought is sometimes helpful. We we very much had that idea of thinking of Jesus as our friend and savior, and that's a way we can introduce him to people. Um, and one of the things that various people had found good was offering to pray for people who maybe in friends who have got problems or in, in need. That's a way in um, is to say, "Can I pray for you?" And people usually either to be prayed for there and then, or just when I'm at home, shall I pray for you? And people nearly always say yes, and uh, and that can then be a, a, something to follow up on. Mm. So that's something we found. Following on from that, I, I was uh, we didn't talk about this in our group actually, but it just the, the comments uh, brought this up to my mind. Is is the in relation to question four and the Great Commission is us having friendships outside of, of church, important. And because then when you have those friendships, um, tragedies and difficulties that your, your friends have enable you to stand alongside them. And at those sort of points, much as in our own lives, we are much more open. Uh, we're no longer the island, um, the fortress suddenly walls come down and we we uh, we feel um, insecure and so you're able to uh, certainly befriend and and uh, and and put an arm around them uh, I mean not li necessarily literally but you know to mm -hmm. to be with them in their tragedy or their difficulty and it gives an opportunity then for Jesus to come into the conversation mm -hmm. not as not as an evangelistic sense but in a sense of love and care for that person. Okay, thank you. Did anybody have a look at uh, question two? You did. Okay. Any, any comments on that? Right, straight away. <laughs> um, I, I shared with our group that um, I think I, I found it easy at the beginning of my faith to think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Mm. And it's, it's as the years have gone by that I've realised that he's pretty tough at times. And I've, I, he's, challenged, he's very challenging at times. Mm. Thank you. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul talked about how when he was a child, he thought as a child, 
And now he'd grown up and put away childish things, childish ways of thinking of things. Um, and I think that's what's inside that thought, really. Is it, for me, I think, I, in, in my early days, I was with a group of a lot of keen Christians who prayed a lot in the early mornings and, uh, and were looking to see, I don't know, sometimes the whole of the generation... The, the Edinburgh Conference was about this, the mission conference, where they said, you know, we want the, the, the whole of this generation to hear the gospel. And we would, that was the commitment. To, and, and it became almost a burden. that we, Our job was to get out there and see as many people become Christians as possible. And I've now discovered, actually, that I don't think the Lord wants that, which may sound a bit funny, really. Um, partly because when I look at Jesus in the gospels, he, he didn't go around trying to get everybody on board. But he did go around loving everybody so that wherever they were at their point, they could make some sort of response. And, and I found a freedom in saying that it's discerning what the Holy Spirit says to you about for this relationship. For sometimes it might be to encourage them to say, take a step of faith. But it might for others just be your listening ear because they're going through a, a hard time. And I found that that was a freeing thing because I felt, you know, we're always running. We're never going to catch up. We're always behind the curve. And, and it became a bit of a burden, really. I don't know if some of you have been that, that sort of sense of duty and obligation to, we've got to get out there and, and stuff. There was a, a book called The Gospel Blimp. Did anybody ever read it? Uh, where it was a group of Christians who got so tied up in the mechanisms of sharing the gospel and that they, the, the piece de resistance was they had this PCC meeting and they decided <laughs> they, they'd rent a hot air balloon and they'd, they'd go over the village dropping tracts as they went. <laughs> And then they, then they, they wise up. Perhaps there's something foolish here. Uh, and but it was. It was that just that drivenness, which I felt actually now I feel wasn't of Jesus. It was well intentioned, but it was it was actually a, a bondage almost. Anyway, that was for me. Okay. Well, now should we leave that there? Because I think the real point of this, the point of Lent, is to take stock and say, Lord, have you a word for me? So we've just got about a few minutes. So in the quiet, you may already have done this, um, just to say, Lord, have you a word for me for this evening? And then, Lord, help me to respond. And then I'll draw our prayers together in a moment. So let's just be quiet. I ask that the Holy Spirit will quicken our ears. So, Lord, we thank you for welcoming us into your family as your brothers and sisters. And we thank you for one another. We thank you for those who prayed and ministered in this place over the years. And we thank you for the present and for the future. And for your Holy Spirit who breathes, breathes new life into us. And we thank you for that scripture which says, Your mercies are fresh every morning. Lord, we thank you. And we do this together in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pray the grace for each other. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. We still nearly get it right, don't we? Next time it's Paul. Who There are two great theologians in the New Testament, Paul and John, and they're both at the end. And what I'm going to suggest we do is we're going to look at Paul's theology of who Jesus is, his high Christology, through a song. How about that? See you next time.